I'm so excited for Jacob, for Kate, for Evie as well. God has called them to Zambia, Africa. Through a bit of uh, discouragement, disappointment, some fear and trepidation, some confusion, God made it clear to them that he wanted them to go to Africa, and they've obeyed the call. Now think about this. Think about this for a minute. They're not sure. They're experiencing some confusion. They go to a cottage to pray. It's not their cottage. They go to somebody else's cottage to pray. Kate says, praise to God, you know what? I can't leave here unless you kind of make this thing clear to me. She grabs a devotional that's on the bedstand next to the bed, and she opens it to where it is bookmarked. And in that devotional, she reads a story about missionaries from 1921 who left Sweden to go to Africa to work with chickens and with eggs. That's a great story. Like, that is an exciting story. It's going to be exciting to hear what God is going to do in and through Jacob and Kate and Evie as well. But this morning... There's a question that that raises for me. There's a question that comes, and the question is this. What is your response to that story? What is your response to that story? Now, I can think of a number of different responses. One response to that story is you may not care. You may be totally apathetic towards that story. You don't really care much about missionaries, chickens, eggs, or even God. That's one response to the story. Another response to the story may be doubt. You may think, hmm, that's interesting. That may be God. That may not be God. I'm not really quite sure. And so there's a level of doubt that you're experiencing in response to that story. A third response may be a bit of surprise. Like, wow, that's kind of a cool story. That's a great story. That's kind of exciting. And you kind of experience surprise in response to the story. There's a fourth response. The fourth response is awe and wonder. Awe and wonder. And awe and wonder demands an object. There has to be an object for our awe and for our wonder. And in this case, the object for our awe and wonder is the God who wrote this story who wrote this story 80, 90 years before Kate or Jacob were even born, who set Swedish missionaries into motion to go to Africa to work in an area where there's a lot of chickens and eggs. And the God who put the devotional by the side of the bed and bookmarked it to the story so that Kate would open it that morning, read it, and see and be affirmed that she and Jacob were called to Africa to serve him. It's an inspirational story that could, should cause us to respond with awe and wonder. This morning, it's my hope as we open God's word that we will respond to him with awe and wonder. That our eyes will be opened and our ears will be opened to see and to hear how he is moving, what he is doing, and the natural outflow of seeing him in action should be awe and wonder. Now, I know for some of you, that may seem a bit impossible. It may be a difficult thing and it may be safer and maybe smarter 
to be apathetic or to doubt or to show a bit of surprise. But here's the danger. If we underestimate our God, if we look at our God, if our God is too small, then we are going to miss out on the things that he is doing. And please listen to this. Please listen to me. If your God is too small, your faith is going to be weak, your fear and your anxiety is going to be strong, and your worship is going to be lame. Did you hear me? This is important. If your God is too small, your faith is going to be weak, your fear and your anxiety is going to be strong, and your worship is going to be lame. You see, Jacob and Kate's story is not unique. Every single day, God is moving and he is working. He is living and active and he is doing these types of things in our lives every day all around us. And our response should be awe and wonder. So if you would, would you please take your Bibles? And turn to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. It's found on page 591 in the Bible that's in the rack in front of you. I would really encourage you. I think I do this every week I talk. I would really encourage you to grab the Bible in front of you, to follow along, because we're going to be reading quite a number of verses in these two chapters. Here in Isaiah 44 and into Isaiah 45... We are going to look at God's majesty and his greatness. His majesty and greatness that is expressed through his sovereignty. And his sovereignty is his power or his control over all things. Even Kate picking up that devotional and reading that story on that day. So today I want you to know As we go through this, I want you to know that our God is not small. The one true God is big. He is huge. He is majestic. And he is great. He is sovereign, which means he is in control of all things. But don't just listen to me. Let's see at what God says about himself. Isaiah 44, beginning in verse 6. This is what the Lord says, Israel's king and redeemer. The Lord Almighty, I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. Who then is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and lay out before me what has happened since I established my ancient people and what is yet to come. Yes, let them foretell what will come. Do not tremble. Do not be afraid. Did I not proclaim this and foretell it long ago? You are my witnesses. Is there any God beside me? No, there is no other rock. I know not one. Here, God reveals himself to us by declaring his absolute uniqueness. There is no one like him. Now, you may think when you read this or when you hear this read that it sounds like he is bragging. But this is not empty boasting. This is God speaking about himself. He is declaring the reality, and he's God. And God is the best source of information about himself. There is no God like him. Look what he says. I am the first and I am the last. Apart from me, there is no God. This phrase exclaims the exclusive sovereignty of God. He begins everything and he ends everything. He is the creator and he will be the judge. 
It's interesting that later in Scripture, Jesus says something very similar to this. The Apostle Paul quotes Jesus in Revelation 22 as saying, I am the Alpha and Omega. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end. You see, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is eternal. He has no beginning. He has no end. He is outside of time. He is over all things. He is sovereign. He is absolutely unique. Look what God also says. Apart from me, there is no God. Now, this does not deny that people worship other gods or that there, are, there is spiritual power behind idols, but it does deny that they are actually gods. There can be only one true God. Everything else is a created being. There is only one creator. And then look in verse 8. God gets personal. He gets personal. He asks a question. Is there any God besides me? He's asking the people of Judah, but he's also asking you and he's asking me. God asks, is there any God beside me? Now, this is not simply a question of whether the Lord God is the only God. It's really a question of dependability. That's why he answers. Look how he answers the question. No, there is no other rock. You see, the imagery of a rock is that of a solid, dependable place of refuge. The Lord God, through his control of history, through his sovereignty, is that rock for his people. See, if our, fear, if our view of God is too small, we will fear the unknown of the future. We will grasp for refuge upon some inferior foothold. We will look to some other, but there is no other. God says here, there is no one beside me. God is telling you and me this morning that he is the one true God. He is the only God. Only he is outside of time. Only he is the creator. Only he is the one who controls all of history. He is the one who controls history. But not only does he control all of history, not only does he control the future, he controls your future. He holds you in his hand. And because he controls the future and because he holds you in his hand and works for your future, look what it says. That's why he says, do not tremble, do not be afraid. You see, he is not a small God. He is one big God. He is majestic and great and he is worthy of our awe and our wonder. But let's be honest. Let's be honest. All of us at one time or another, at some time or another, can struggle with apathy, with doubt, or even a little bit of surprise. We listen to Jacob and we listen to Kate's story and we're just not sure. We don't care or we doubt or maybe it's surprise, but we don't see the working of God in and through that story. And we do not, therefore, respond with awe and wonder. And it's not only Jacob and Kate's story, it's our stories as well. So many times in our lives, we look at the circumstances of our lives, of things that are happening around us, and we don't see a majestic and a great God who is intimately involved in holding you in his hand. Or maybe we do see him, but we just don't give him enough credit. So what are we to do? 
What are you to do if you struggle with apathy, if you struggle with doubt, or if you're only just a bit surprised about God and who he is and what he is doing? Well, our text for this morning gives us two instructions. It gives us two instructions to how to come to see God as majestic and great. The first instruction is recognize the futility of idols. Number one, recognize the futility of idols. The second instruction is focus upon God's sovereignty. You see, if you want to be filled with awe and wonder at the workings of the one true God, if you want to see him as majestic and great, first you need to recognize the futility of your idols. Now it's interesting. The Bible rarely depicts God as laughing. But here in Isaiah 44, God laughs. He laughs at the utter foolishness of worshiping and serving creator, created things rather than the creator. Look at, he ridicules idol makers and idol worshipers. Look at verses 9 through 11. All who make idols are nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Those who would speak up for them are blind. They are ignorant to their own shame. Who shapes a god and casts an idol which can profit nothing? People who do that will be put to shame. Such craftsmen are only human beings. Let them all come together and take their stand. They will be brought down to terror and shame. The Lord begins here by declaring his verdict on idol makers and idol worshipers. They're nothing, and the things they treasure are worthless. Their gods are made by human hands. How can something made by human hands save humans? God continues in verse 12. Listen to the absurdity of it all. The blacksmith takes a tool and works with it in the coals. He shapes an idol with hammers. He forges it with the might of his arm. He gets hungry and loses his strength. He drinks no water and grows faint. The carpenter measures with a line and makes an outline with a marker. He roughs it out with chisels and marks it with compasses. He shapes it in human form, human form in all its glory, that it may dwell in a shrine. He cut down cedars, or perhaps took a cypress or oak. He let it grow among the trees of the forest, or planted a pine, and the rain made it grow. It is used as fuel for burning. Some of it he takes and warms himself. He kindles a fire and bakes bread, but he also fashions a god and worships it. He makes an idol and bows down to it. Half of the wood he burns in the fire. Over it he prepares his meal. He roasts his meat and eats his fill. He also warms himself and says, Ah, I am warm. I see the fire. From the rest he makes a god his idol. He bows down to it and worships. He prays to it and says, Save me, you are my god. Here God describes the process for making idols, the work of the blacksmith, the work of the carpenter. The blacksmith gets hungry and tired. The carpenter forms wood into human form. People are worshiping statues made with human hands, but not only God made with human hands, but God's made to look like humans. They make an idol in their image, in human form. Blaise Pascal, the 17th century philosopher, theologian, and mathematician, is quoted as saying, God made man in his own image, and man returned the compliment. See, in essence, in essence, they're worshiping themselves. 
But the folly continues. The idol maker goes into the forest to cut down trees, cedar, cypress. Maybe he even gets an oak tree. The idols are made out of wood from a tree that the idol maker could not create, a tree that was watered by rain that the idol maker could not provide. Do you see the irony here? The idol maker is dependent upon God's creation to fashion the idol that he is going to bow down and worship. The idol maker did not create the tree, did not water it, and did not cause it to grow. God did. Now, God has just demonstrated idolatry to be phenomenally absurd. But the ultimate seriousness of the futility and its consequences is seen in the next few verses. Look at verse 18. They know nothing. They understand nothing. Their eyes are plastered over so they cannot see and their minds closed so they cannot understand. No one stops to think. No one has the knowledge or understanding to say, half of it I used for fuel. I even baked bread over its coals. I roasted meat and I ate. Shall I make a detestable thing from what is left? Shall I bow down to a block of wood? Such a person feeds on ashes. A deluded heart misleads him. He cannot save himself or say, is not this thing in my right hand a lie? This is sad. These people fail to grasp the absurdity of their beliefs and actions. Look what it says. No one stops to think. No one stops to think about the absurdity of it all. So their eyes are shut and their minds are closed so they don't understand. In other words, they become what they worship. And tragically... As a result, they feed on ashes. And ashes provide no sustenance, no nourishment, and no benefit. The idols they have created become a lie that they hold in their right hand, and they don't even know it's a lie. Is this starting to sound familiar? It's not all that different than it is today. It's not all that different thousands of years ago than it is right now, right here today. Now, we don't have idols made of wood, statues in our living room that we bow down and that we worship. But an idol is whatever you place your trust in. An idol is whatever you place your trust in to save you, to rescue you, to bring you hope, and to bring you salvation. That is what an idol is. And no, we don't have pieces of wood or iron in our living rooms. But we do bow down to blocks of wood, don't we? So many times in our lives, we look to other things. We're just like these people. All too often, we worship at the altar of self, where money, power, position, prestige, and ego have become our gods. Not to mention a whole bunch of other addictions. These things have become our gods. All forms of modern idolatry have one thing in common. 
self. We no longer bow down to idols of wood. We worship ourselves. And the problem is, just like God says, it all turns to ashes. It's foolish to think that we can create something that is going to rescue us, that we can create with our own hands something that's going to rescue us or save us. It's ridiculous to think that we can create a religion and create our own God to which we bow down and which will provide us rescue. You see, we do not have that power. We do not have that control, but God does. You see, the point of the Bible, the point of this book of Isaiah is that there are idols all around us and each one of us have a choice. You can bow down to a block of wood and worship that block of wood. You can bow down to yourself and worship yourself. You can seek power, position, prestige, and ego or maybe bury yourself in a number of addictions or... You can turn and worship the one true, majestic, and great God and respond to him with awe and wonder. Who do you worship? No, really. Who do you worship? Are you bowing down to a block of wood? Are you worshiping yourself? Power? Money? Prestige? How about our government? Do you worship our government? How about the environment? Do you worship the environment? Who do you worship? See, God tells us it's worthless without power, without meaning. If you're bowing down to a block of wood, how's it going for you? Is that block of wood providing rescue? Is that block of wood providing salvation? It's because there is a God. There is a real, living God who declares himself as the one true God who is majestic and great and worthy of our awe and our wonder. Number one, recognize the futility of idols. Number two, focus on the sovereignty of God. Focus upon the sovereignty of God. Now last week, We were in Isaiah chapter 43, and Jim shared with us the most important message of the Bible. The most important message of the Bible is that God loves you. God declares that he is yours and you are his. This is a beautiful testimony of who God is, and it's true. It is the most important message of the Bible, the message that God loves you. But think about this with me for a minute. If God is not majestic and great, 
If God is not sovereign and in control, if God does not have the power to rescue and provide salvation, then the fact that he loves us is just kind of nice. It really doesn't hold a whole lot of meaning. But if God is majestic and great, if God is sovereign and in control, if God does have the power to rescue and save, then the message of his love is powerful, effective, and salvific. Do you see what happens? Yes, the most important message of the Bible is that God loves you. You are his and he is yours. But a very close second is the fact that God is majestic and great and sovereign and in control and in having power over all things. Because then that love has incredible, incredible meaning. So God now gives us an example of his sovereignty. In this example, we're going to see that God controls history. He controls the future. Now, not only does he predict the future, he shapes the future. Here at the end of Isaiah 44 and into Isaiah 45, we have an amazing prediction, a prediction that has already been fulfilled. It stands as one of the most stunning proofs of the Bible's divine origins. And it's a proof of God's sovereignty. In Isaiah 44 and into Isaiah 45, Isaiah reveals the coming of Cyrus the Great, the king of Persia. Earlier in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah forewarns Israel. He predicts that Judah is going to be taken into captivity by Babylon. But before that ever happens, God reveals that he is going to provide salvation to Judah through King Cyrus of Persia, and he predicts this 150 years before it happens. Follow me. Isaiah 44, starting in verse 27. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer, who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learning of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited, Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt, and of their ruins I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid." You see, this is anticipating years of exile and captivity in Babylon and God's promise to raise and restore Jerusalem. And did you see, did you hear who God names? Cyrus, the king of Persia, 150 years before he is born. That is God's sovereignty. That is his control over all things. He controls history. He predicts the future. So what is your response? Apathy? 
doubt, maybe even a bit of surprise. Did you hear what I just read? Our response should be awe and wonder. This is one big, majestic God. And if that's not enough for you, Isaiah continues. Not only does God predict the future, he shapes it. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 1. Look what God says to Cyrus, what Isaiah shares with us. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you the title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. These verses, these verses exclaim the sovereignty of God. God controls history. He is not only predicting it, he is shaping the future. Look at what God says. Look at this list. I take hold of Cyrus's hand. I go before, I level, I break, I cut, I give, I summon, I bestow, I strengthen, I form, I bring prosperity, and I create disaster. Who's doing all the work? God is doing all the work. Who is shaping the future? God is shaping the future. Why? Why does he do all these things? To show that he is the one true God, that he is completely and unique, that he is majestic and great, that he is apart and different from any of the other gods. He is sovereign and he is in control of all things. And today... Today, he is still sovereign, and he is still in control of all things. He knows the future, and he knows the future. He predicts the future. He shapes the future, and he holds all of history in his hands. He is outside of time. He has created this world. He has created you, and he has created me, and he has placed us in this world, and he has not forgotten us because not only does he control the future, he controls our future. He controls your future. Our God is majestic and great and worthy of our awe and of our wonder. Now maybe you're here and you've been looking around at the situation in our nation. And you look around at the situation in our nation and you have some fear and you have anxiety about what is going on and what is happening. And you may be a bit hopeful because you think our president may be the modern day Cyrus and that he has come and he is going to rescue and save Christians. Or, or you may think that our president is the one that is causing all the problems and he is even the Antichrist. Guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he is the one who is going to 
provides salvation as a modern day Cyrus or if he is the Antichrist. And you know why it doesn't matter? Because God is in control. God is sovereign. Now listen, I am not saying, I am not saying that we are not supposed to be good citizens who participate in our form of government. We should. But what I am saying is that God controls history. And it does not matter whether Trump is Cyrus or whether Trump is the Antichrist because God is in control. He is majestic and he is great. And he is worthy of our awe and our wonder. You may think that the world is ending in 12 years. You may think that global warming is out of control and climate change cannot be reversed, that it's irreversible. Or you may think that the whole kind of climate change argument is completely overblown. You may even think it's a hoax. Guess what? It doesn't matter. It does not matter. Now listen, I believe that as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be good stewards of this earth that God has created. I am not saying that. But what I am saying is whether global warming, climate change is a reality or whether it is overblown hoax, it does not matter. Because God is in control. He is sovereign He is majestic and great, and so our response should be a response of awe and wonder. This morning, I want you to know that we serve a God who is sovereign, He is in control of history. He stands outside of time, yet is intimately involved in each of our lives, demonstrating his love for us. You see, God is yours, and you are his. He loves you. And I want you to know that the God who was intimately involved in Jacob and Kate's story is just as intimately involved in each one of your stories. He has not left you. He has not abandoned you. Far from it. He is majestic and he is great. And so you and I can have faith that he is living and active and working in our lives on a daily basis. Not only demonstrating his love and his faithfulness, but demonstrating his power, his sovereignty, his majesty, and his greatness. So what's our response? What should our response be to God's awe and wonder? What do we do when we experience God's awe and wonder? This is not rhetorical, and it's not a trick question. When we experience awe and wonder in the depths of our souls, what do we do? 
we praise him, we worship, and what that requires is we come before the Lord God and we bend our knee and we declare that he is majestic and great and worthy of our awe and honor and praise and wonder and worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would forgive us. That you would forgive us for our apathy. That you would forgive us for our doubt. Lord, that you would forgive us when we only just show a bit of surprise. Forgive us for these improper responses to your majesty and for your greatness. Lord, I pray that we would see you as majestic and great, that we would recognize your power in our lives, that we would see your sovereign hand lead and guide and rescue and save us. Lord, open our eyes and open our ears to see and to hear who you are and what you have done. And Lord, I pray that we will respond with awe and with wonder. Lord, we do not want our worship to be lame. We want our worship to be honoring. We want to praise you. We want to sing of your majesty and your greatness. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.